Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. In the months ahead, the U.S. Supreme Court will consider cases about same-sex marriage, voting rights, affirmative action, DNA testing, self-incrimination, and other questions of consequence for American rights. Today we'll discuss some of these disputes and constitutional interpretation broadly with one of the nation's foremost constitutional scholars, Akilah Moore of Yale Law School. He is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale and the author of a series of books about the Constitution, most recently, America's Unwritten Constitution. Viewers are welcome to submit questions during today's show through Yale's Facebook page by tweeting at Yale or emailing us at socialmedia at yale.edu. Welcome, Akhil Amar. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Big term uh, for huge, the Supreme Court. Huge. A lot of huge issues. Which are the ones that you are following most closely and why? Well, I think the Voting Rights Act case, the Shelby County case, which is going to be argued on February 27th, so just about a week from now, is close to my heart. Um, and in fact, I have a, a piece about the case that's uh, going to be posted, I hope, uh, later this week, um, if not early next week, um, on the Harvard Law Review um, online um, website on the case. And the reason that's close to my heart is the justices have asked um, to basically uh, hear a challenge to one of the central provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which has been reauthorized several times since then, a provision that basically says that certain states with really bad voting track records, bad histories of, of basically discrimination and disfranchisement, have to get federal pre-approval before they institute new changes in, 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 vote, in their voting uh, procedures. And it's called Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And, and I think that Section 5 is easily and obviously constitutional. Apparently, there are at least some justices who have some doubts about this. And the reason that's, I guess, close to my heart is because when I'm born in 1958, it is not the case that voting rights are really enforced on the ground in America. The Constitution promises voting rights, especially after the Civil War, um, but as late as the late 1950s and early 1960s, that wasn't the reality in places, basically the former Confederacy, where m many blacks live. Um, most blacks were actually unable to vote in the late 50s and early 60s. The world has profoundly changed. It's changed because of the Voting Rights Act. Without that statute, you don't have President Barack Obama. You don't have the modern world. Um, so that's, for me, an iconic statute. It's not an ordinary statute. It's, it's more like itself a constitutional provision. That's part of our unwritten constitution. Um, that law, the Voting Rights Act and its companion, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, is, is washed in the blood of American martyrs. John Kennedy, Abe Lincoln, Martin King, 
John Lewis, um, Aunt Rosa Parks. And, and so if that law were actually struck down by the Supreme Court, that would, that would be a big deal and, and, and a sad day. So how do you see it playing out? Well, I think there, that there are absolutely go-to-the-bank um, uh, um, uh, uh, on four solid votes to uphold it no matter what. Those are the, that's the liberal wing of the court, um, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, um, uh, Justice um, Breyer. Um, and um, so, uh, um, uh, the, uh, um, and of course, Justice Ginsburg, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So the opponents would have to fill an inside straight. They'd have to get every one of the conservative justices, and, and all my side has to do is peel off one of them, and I think we have different arguments that might be appealing to different members of the so-called conservative wing. So I put some stuff in that I, I hope might be of interest even to Justice Thomas, um, um, who's raised some doubts about this, but is open to originalist arguments. And I made some originalist textualist arguments to Justice Scalia, who says that he's an originalist and is open to these things, to, to Justice Kennedy, who has great admiration for the civil rights movement and considers himself a child, I think, of the, a mm -hmm. product of the civil rights movement. So, so um, uh, Chief Justice um, Roberts, who I think um, would care about the legacy of the Roberts Court. He's, gonna, he's a very young man. He's going to be on the court a long time. So there might be different arguments that might, uh, and Justice Alito is the, is the fifth. Um, I could imagine uh, getting any one of, of, of those. I only need, my side only needs one. Um, so, um, uh, but, um, and in the Obamacare case, for example, we, they, um, the liberal four stuck together and Chief Justice Roberts mm -hmm. came along. In other cases, it's been Justice Kennedy who sometimes joined um, the, the liberals. But, but the very idea that this is in play is kind of actually unsettling to me. I wouldn't have predicted that five or ten years ago. Mm. I, th I would have thought this is, this is bedrock. This is settled. Um, the voting rights are, are claimed by both parties, I would have thought. And if you would, run through for us, almost in list form, uh, some of the other cases uh, that you're most uh, energized about and most focused on. I think there's a very interesting case also, I think, to be argued later this month about DNA testing of people who have been arrested, not convicted, but arrested, and, and their DNA is um, gotten through like a, a, a cheek swab or something and then put in a database and analyzed. Um, there's a case about whether um, the University of, of Texas and, and other um, uh, public schools are going to be allowed to engage in race-conscious affirmative action in the name of, of um, a, a diversity. Um, uh, you remind me of some of the others. That, oh yeah, uh, well, I, it, you um, know, same-sex marriage. Oh, is of, also, course, of course, that, 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 bo bo both the the, the the Defense of Marriage Act yep. and the California same-sex mm -hmm. Prop 8 Perry uh, case. So two big, actually, same-sex marriage cases. Mm -hmm. One about a federal statute and and whether the federal statute actually has to recognize gay marriage in states where it's legal. That's the the DOMA case, mm -hmm. the Defense of Marriage Act case, and then of course there's another case out of California, um, very specific perhaps to the facts of California. California 
um, extended um, gay uh, um, a, a marriage to, to, to gay couples and then later took it away by a, a statewide initiative. And there's a question, can you do that? Once you've given it, can you take it back that way? Mm -hmm. How could I forget those? Um, what, else, what else interests well, you? Well, what, what I was going to ask you is, of, of all these big cases, um, which one is going to be most important to an individual is going to vary from person to person based on their, their particular their personal interest. Yes. Um, but I guess I would ask you, which of these cases seems most likely, depending on the outcome, to cause sudden and widespread change in American society? Well, if the Voting Rights Act were eliminated, or this key portion of it, an act that I think has really served America very well, an act that passed um, with overwhelming congressional majorities uh, when it came up for renewal. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, vast majorities of both parties supporting it, signed into law by and, and re uh, authorized and reauthorized by a series of presidents of both parties. Um, uh, well, then we'd need maybe to provide some substitute for the law that was struck down. Um, the parties are having difficulty agreeing about a lot of stuff, so to invalidate the Voting Rights Act would be a very big deal. Mm. Um, so, um, whereas in gay marriage, um, my own sense um, from a kind of a philosophical or political science perspective is no matter what the Supreme Court does, um, this term, we're going to have gay marriage nationwide in 10 years, no matter what the court does this term, because even if they said no gay marriage right, even in California um, uh, now, Californians are free to adopt gay marriage and will do so soon enough, within the next couple of years, I think, just uh, when you look at the polling data and, and the demographic trends, Every year, people who believe in equality and gay marriage come of age, and those that are skeptical of gay marriage in general are dying quicker. Um, so, so you do the math. People who are skeptical of gay marriage or older Americans are uh, leaving um, uh, this world, and, and those who are very pro-gay marriage are becoming voters. So no matter what the Supreme Court does, we're going to have gay marriage in a whole bunch of states soon. And then once it's in a majority of states, yeah. the Supreme Court will come along and nationalize it, even if they're not ready to do so and, now. And that will be a necessary step in order for gay couples to enjoy all of the same rights under federal law, of course, that, that heterosexual couples are entitled to. Right. Well, so under, and under federal law, that's the DOMA case, the Defense of Marriage Act case. And, and that, e even if that one happened quickly, um, a court could split the difference. I could imagine a court saying the federal government has to recognize same-sex marriages in states where same-sex marriage is legal. Okay, so that mm -hmm. would that would. Um, but states are free to choose. I, I could imagine mm -hmm. that. I, I'm not supporting that. But but if that were to happen, what I'm saying is states are increasingly going to choose same-sex marriage, and then the federal government will recognize those, and eventually. The court might, for example, say, oh, the federal government isn't the only government that has to recognize same-sex marriage. If two people from Connecticut, where it's legal, go to Utah and get married, I'm sorry, two people from Utah, where it's not legal, come to Connecticut, get married, and then go back, Utah has to recognize that 
marriage. Well, once you've done that, once you've said even states that don't have same-sex marriage have to recognize other states' same-sex marriage, you've basically come this close to nationalizing the thing in the same way that way back when everyone you know, wanted to get a quick divorce would go to Nevada. Mm -hmm. So Nevada basically drove the divorce laws for the country. Every, if, if Connecticut um, or Massachusetts or these other states that, that solemnize same-sex marriage, if their marriages have to be recognized in the other places, well, then it, all you need, two people need is you know, just to be in love with each other and, and a train ticket or a plane ticket. They go get married. So, so I think same-sex marriage is here to stay and will be nationalized. The only question is how quickly. Whereas, if the Voting Rights Act were invalidated, I don't know if today's Republican Party mm -hmm. would support um, um, a, 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 a reauthorization of um, a, the sort that we, I'd like to see. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, introduce a topic that uh, I don't believe is before the Supreme Court now, and I don't know when it will be, but uh, given uh, given how prevalent the issue is and, and at the forefront of our minds now seems like it will be at some point before too long and that's gun control. So do you uh, envision a gun control case in the near future and what might trigger it? Lots of gun control cases and here's why. Because for most of American history, the Supreme Court said next to nothing about the Second Amendment. There was a case from 1939 called Miller. It was read in different ways. Um, but, but then in 2008, a case called Heller came along. And in Heller, the Supreme Court announced, really for the first time clearly, the Second Amendment protects an individual right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. And maybe beyond that, but the core right um, that an individual has is a gun in the home for self-protection. Heller invalidated a D.C. ordinance, Washington, D.C., that in effect was a blanket prohibition on guns in homes. Okay. Then two years later, later, a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald said that right, which the Second Amendment affirms against federal law and the federal government, and therefore D.C., which is governed by federal law, that right, that Second Amendment right, a right to an in, uh, of an individual to have a gun in the home for self-protection, also applies against states and localities. And in particular, uh, Chicago, which also had this draconian ban on guns even in homes, that law couldn't stand. Now. There are lots of gun measures that are less draconian than Chicago's and D.C.'s, and there's very little Supreme Court pronouncement, just those two cases, 2008, 2010. So we're going to get lots of litigation um, by um, uh, challenging various state laws, various local ordinances, and if Congress gets around to doing something, I don't know whether they will, mm -hmm. possibly a federal law. Um, I think most of the laws that are actually on the table right now could pass um, th th that are politically realistic. That is the proposals that we've been hearing about. Could pass muster in the courts. Um, some of the proposals, for example, would be universal background checks, limits on the um, size of the gun clip, um, uh, the magazine, uh, how many bullets you can you can have in a in a in a in a magazine. Um, limits on the amount of ammo um, you can buy at any one time, the number of guns you could stockpile, all sorts of um, uh, 
re restrictions that wouldn't really interfere with the core right of an individual to have a gun in the home mm -hmm. for self-protection. Mental health checks, um, particularly strong um, penalties for straw purchasers, people who actually buy guns on behalf of others who wouldn't be eligible to buy them themselves. Those are the things that are frankly politically realistic. Um, and so some of the constraints as a practical matter are political constraints that are probably, if anything, as high as the constitutional uh, judicial constraints would be. Um, the one thing that might ha um, be in trouble in the court is a, a ban on assault weapons if the ban were seen as kind of cosmetic, actually not really distinguishing between different weapons on the basis of their real hardware and firepower and lethality and their, um, 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 their, their actual capacity, but for example, because uh, one gun looks nastier, it's got um, a bayonet, mm -hmm. um, it's got um, a, a flash something or other, it, it's, it's um, got a, a plastic stock rather than a wooden stock. And, and then the court might say, we think that these cosmetic laws are motivated by kind of an impermissible purpose, an anti-gun purpose, precisely because they really don't deal with real problems um, we're doubtful about this. So, so I say avoid cosmetic laws, um, pass real gun control measures that nevertheless respect the core right of an individual to have a gun in self-protection. And maybe because of Heller and McDonald, are, ironically, maybe gun control is a little easier to do politically because people can't say, this is the first step on a slope, slippery slope that will lead to confiscation because Judge Scalia won't let that happen. We have two Supreme Court cases now that say you can't do that. And so maybe we can have reasonable gun control and people also have a right to have guns in homes. In just a minute, we're going to take some questions uh, from the public. But before we get there, I want to ask you uh, sort of a process question. Would you explain for our viewers how it is that cases get before the Supreme Court? That is, how the court decides what cases to hear and what cases that it's simply going to let rest? It has vast discretion um, in any given year. There are thousands, four or five thousand petitions, applications mm -hmm. for the Supreme Court to review a case. In the recent past, the Supreme Court has heard anywhere from 80 to 100 cases a year. So you do the math. It's very unusual. Mm -hmm. What factors predict that a Supreme Court will take a case? Two or three. One. If the lower courts are divided on an issue, if the circuits are split, that will at a certain point typically prompt the Supreme mm -hmm. Court to get involved, to, to clarify and um, harmonize the law, to come up with a, a uniform rule for, for the various lower courts. T second and related, if the United States government, the Solicitor General, asks that a case be heard by the Supreme Court, the odds increase dramatically mm -hmm. that the court will hear such a case. Okay. And do the justices actually vote in their private chambers? They do. Okay. And the basic rule, it's a minority rule. Four justices are enough to basically hear the case. Interesting. So it's the rule of four. Now, once they've heard the case, five justices could say, you know, we've heard it, but we actually now decide that we think we just shouldn't. We want to dismiss it. And so we, we quote, dig the case. We dismiss it as improvidently granted. So there are, are there oral arguments before that? Typically. Okay. I mean, the five could do anything they want because yeah. majority rules. Um, and we could talk about the filibuster. Yeah. And, uh, and I actually, majority rule is a deep constitutional yeah. principle. But the tradition is four justices are enough to basically put the case on the agenda. And by tradition, putting the case on the agenda would mean at least having briefing and argument. Mm -hmm. But after that, 
it's possible to imagine the uh, five justices saying, well, it was briefed, we heard the oral argument, we actually think that we don't want to get involved. Okay. We're going to take a couple questions now. We have one coming in uh, via Twitter from at uh, W.D. Portman, and he asks uh, a couple of questions, and I'll let you decide which of these uh, you're most interested in, in answering. Uh, but uh, he's curious to know if you have any thoughts on mandatory minimums and whether juries or judges should decide when they apply, and uh, also interested in uh, what the major differences are uh, between this year's affirmative action case uh, and the big one from 2003, Grutter v. Bollinger. Excellent. So um, actually this new book, America's Unwritten Constitution, um, has a chapter on um, our savage criminal punishment system mm -hmm. um, with particular emphasis on three strikes laws where a person might go to prison for the rest of his life for stealing a slice of pizza or a baseball glove, um, if that's his third mm -hmm. offense, and mandatory minimum laws which can be extremely harsh. Um, and the chapter is about what should a conscientious judge or juror do if the punishment really is unconscionable. So this is a chapter about what a critic might call jury nullification, um, the ability of a jury or a judge to just say no in uh, the name of mercy um, and um, uh, uh, toward um, a criminal defendant. Um, the, 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 the rule is that if a jury acquits, even if the person is pretty plainly guilty to the judge, the person walks. The, um, and I argue that jurors, um, we should have m morally serious instructions. So jurors are told that these are the rules. They're told what the sentencing consequences might be. And they're also told about the history of um, uh, improper jury nullification in American history, where Klansmen walked free because all white juries in the South mm. um, acquitted them when these Klansmen had um, uh, lynched and murdered um, uh, a black people. So is that an um, argument for some kind of mandatory minimums? That is, depending on... It, well, um, I, my argument is that jurors should know what the sentencing consequences are. So they shouldn't be told simply, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the question before you is simply, did the person um, steal a slice of pizza and here's the videotape. They should be told, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the question is, did the person steal the slice of pizza and if you say yes, this person goes to prison for the rest of their lives. Or if you say yes to this, um, that the person um, had this amount of drugs, there's a mandatory minimum. That jurors should be told what they are really actually doing when they come back with a guilty verdict. Blackstone referred to a certain practice of English juries as pious perjury. Perjury is wrong. It's a false swearing. Um, but he thought it was pious. What did he mean by pious perjury? Situations where juries came in with verdicts that were actually more merciful than the facts warranted. In specifically, if you stole something and it was worth more than a pound, let's say it's a horse, that's grand larceny and you must hang by the neck. Capital offense. But if the horse was worth less than a pound, petty larceny, and then you'd just be sent off to Georgia or um, Australia. Now everyone knows, and the question strictly speaking is that a hundred people saw you steal the horse, that's not a question. The only question is whether it was grand or petty larceny. Was the horse worth more than a pound? Now everyone in the jury knows that the horse is worth more than a pound, but sometimes they'd come back with a verdict of petty larceny, saying oh, the horse was not very valuable. 
in order to be merciful to the mm -hmm. defendant, to spare his life and send him instead to Georgia. And Blackstone, this is a very long tradition of this, referred to this as pious perjury. Yes, it was perjury in a way. They acquitted of, the, of grand larceny, mm -hmm. but, but it was motivated by a certain piety, a certain um, sense of, of, of conscience and, and mercy. And so are you saying that there's no way for jurors in our system to do that because they don't necessarily know exactly what the Sometimes is? judges tell them if the, the horse was worth more than um, a pound, if the cocaine um, weighed more than a certain number of grams, you must convict. Mm. Um, and a lot of times they're not told what the sentencing consequences of that would be, that this is a mandatory minimum case. I think they should be told what the sentencing consequences should be. I think they should be told that, in fact, they do have the power to acquit against the evidence, and they should be told that that power has been abused mm -hmm. in American history, and, and, and so we need, they need to actually have a serious conversation about whether this is appropriate um, uh, for in effect what a critic would call jury nullification. Mm -hmm. But there's a great American tradition of jury nullification. And judges basically saying, I, judges as a matter of conscience, for example, saying, I refuse to sign my name on a death warrant. I will oppose mm -hmm. every capital sentence. Thurgood Marshall, at the end of his career, said that he would oppose every single capital um, sentence, death sentence. So did William Brennan. So did um, Harry Blackman at the very, very end of his time on the court. John Stevens at the end said something a little less absolutist. Um, but I think there might be a role, and it's, it's, it's um, complicated, and, and I want the re reader to wrestle with this as I want jurors and judges mm. to wrestle with the moral complexity of sending um, vulnerable human beings who are standing before you in the courtroom and, and subjecting them to savage punishment. They may have done terrible things, but I want the judges and the jurors to really wrestle with what is a morally sensible punishment. Any thoughts on the, uh, those affirmative action cases yes. and, and the sort of fundamental differences between uh, the current case and the 03 Bollinger case? Two differences. One, Justice O'Connor used to be the swing justice. She no longer is. She was replaced by Justice Alito, who's more hostile to affirmative action. That means the new swing justice is not Sandra Day O'Connor, but Tony Kennedy, mm -hmm. who is more skeptical of affirmative action. That's just um, and and uh, so that's the legal realist difference. O'Connor isn't the swing justice. Kennedy is because O'Connor was replaced by Alito, who's to her right, so to speak, mm -hmm. on affirmative action. The factual difference mm -hmm. is that in the, the University of Texas arguably had a more, um, um, uh, did more affirmative action in a sort of a heavier-handed way with less sort of finesse than um, the Grutter case demands. Grutter says you can do affirmative action, but these things must be done delicately, you know, very, very sensitively, um, without too much weight on race as opposed to other factors, and only as part of one holistic process. And the argument is that's not what Texas did. Let's take another question. Uh, this one is, uh, is about gun control again. 
Um, and this one comes from a gentleman named uh, Martin Coburn, who, um, who describes himself as a Yale alumnus. He says, in my ongoing discussions with my pro-gun friends, they claim, echoing Wayne LaPierre, that one of the purposes of the Second Amendment was to allow citizens to resist tyrannical government. My contention is that if this had been the aim of the founders, then they would have simultaneously repealed Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution, which defines treason as, quote, leaving war against the United States one man's resistance is another's treason. How do you respond to that? That, um, and if you would just uh, t tell tell our viewers exactly what our Article Three, Section Three is. Article uh, Three, Section Three, mainly is about the role of judges, but it has some special rules defining treason against the United States, which consists of levying war against the United States and giving aid and comfort to their enemies, and prescribing special rules that you have to actually have two witnesses testifying to the same overt mm -hmm. act. So it's in Article Three because it's partly about what you have to prove in court if you're going to call someone a traitor. Um, and Article Three is generally about the, 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 the rules governing the judiciary. Article One is the legislature, Article Two is the executive, Article Three is the judiciary. Now, um, uh, for, since um, uh, um, uh, this is from a Yale alum, mm -hmm. I would encourage everyone to go see the Trumbull Gallery um, in the, in the, at the heart of um, uh, Yale University Art Gallery. There's a beautiful painting by John Trumbull. Um, on the Battle of Bunkers Hill, which does um, capture a certain founding vision. It's local militias against um, the imperial redcoats in resisting tyranny um, by local militias. Couple of things, though, about that vision. One, no one voted for parliament. So local militia resistance in Lexington, Concord, Bunker Hill was against an unrepresentative government. Okay. Um, and that was, um, and no one voted for the King of England, who was a tyrant. And that's what the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. is all about, all the tyrannical things that he and Parliament did, and there wasn't a, v a way to vote the bums out. Mm. But in America's Constitution, we have elections. And so um, uh, if you think you're gov and we have courts, and we have free speech. So if you think your government has done something wrong, you have to go to court. Or you have to, you know, um, and, and, and prove that they've done something wrong. Or you have to actually persuade your fellow citizens with free speech and, and elections, ballots, not bullets. And this lesson was lost on the antebellum South. They took up arms, claiming that they were doing just like 1776, but they weren't. This is in the beginning of the, the antebellum yeah. South took up arms against a duly elected government. And they could claim that Lincoln was a tyrant. He hadn't done anything. They had, they had actually seceded a bunch of them before he'd even taken the oath of office. They can say all sorts of things. But taking up arms against a duly elected government is a very different thing than taking up arms in, in, in 1776 or 1775 against um, a tyrannical King George. Another way of saying that is our Second, our Constitution is a reflection of our history. Mm -hmm. Our history is defined largely by our wars. And yes, the Second Amendment has a little bit of this revolutionary echo, uh, state militias against an imperial center. 
But the Second Amendment isn't the only amendment mm. on this topic. The Fourteenth Amendment is relevant as well. That was adopted after the Civil War. Remember I told you there were two gun cases. There was the Heller case mm -hmm. about D.C., and then the city of Chicago versus McDonald's case that says these same Second Amendment rights apply against states and localities. Why? Because in the Revolutionary War, the states are the heroes, the imperial government, they're the bad guys, and, um, and we have local juries and local militias and local uh, assemblies um, organizing against the imperial center. That's the Revolutionary War. But after the Civil War, it became clear that states could misbehave and had misbehaved, and they had actually shut down free speech and shut down free press. They made it a crime to criticize slavery. It was a, a federal, I mean, excuse me, a, a capital offense in North Carolina to criticize slavery, to be an effective member of the Republican Party. They took up arms against a duly elected government. They shut down preachers in the pulpit who preached against slavery. So the 14th Amendment comes along, which mm -hmm. is a reflection of the Civil War not just the Revolutionary War, it says states need to be reined in. No state can, can mess with fundamental rights. And in the process, redefined fundamental rights. Yes, for the framers, it was about local militias against a tyrannical army. But after the Civil War, we don't love those state militias anymore. They fought against the army. And the army, that's our army. That's U.S. Grant. That's Abe Lincoln. That's Tom Hanks in um, saving Private Ryan. We today do not think that the federal government and the federal army are some aliens, Hessians, mercenaries, um, uh, imperial jackbooted thugs. We think they are us. We, we elect them. They, so, so after the Civil War, the vision of arms bearing in America was applied against the states and reconceptualized, mm -hmm. refined. The new vision, the, which is the Civil War vision, is not taking up arms against a tyrannical government, but guns in homes for self-protection. Why? Because after the Civil War, blacks in their homes couldn't count on local cops to protect them when the Klan came calling, and so they would mm. need guns in their homes for self-protection. The National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre's association, was founded after the Civil War by a group of ex-Union Army officers, and they were actually opposed to the Klan that tried to take guns away from black people in their homes. So the founding vision was this militias against a tyrannical central government, but two things happened. One, we created a constitution when the central government would actually be representative, you know, democratic, and, and with all sorts of other checks, the First Amendment, free speech, elections, lawsuits. So. I don't know about this tyranny thing. You know, if you lose an election fair and square, you got to, mm -hmm. you know, win on your second. After we amended the Constitution after the Civil War to reflect a different vision of liberty in America, one not nearly so protective of states' rights, um, and, and rather much more focused on individual rights to have guns in the home for self-protection. So, in one sentence, founding vision: when the guns are out, when guns are outlawed, only the king's men will have guns. Reconstruction vision. When guns are outlawed, only Klansmen will have guns, which is like when guns are outlawed, only outlaws mm -hmm. will have guns. That, that's the modern vision. And, and so this, these people who, who talk about re resisting federal tyranny miss the fact that the federal government was duly elected. So in your view, does the Second Amendment entitle Americans to have any weapon and all weapons that they can get a hold of. No. So, 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 so clearly regulation is 
is, is, is authorized, and it's really almost purely a question of politics. Um, well, it's a question of politics because as a practical matter, um, the political skepticism of gun control um, um, ensures that anything that actually passes is going to be pretty moderate and, and reasonable. So um, let's actually do the Constitution House. There's the Second Amendment. I told you what that was about. Mm -hmm. There's the Fourteenth Amendment. I told you what that was about. The Ninth Amendment says they're unenumerated rights. Even if we didn't have a Second Amendment right to have a gun in a home, maybe we should have, a, we have an unenumerated right. The same way, where does it say in the Constitution you have a right to privacy or to play the fiddle or to have a pet dog or to raise your children? Those are all unenumerated rights. So is a right to have a gun in your home. It's part of the American tradition and culture. And this is a lot of what you get into in your book. They're unenumerated rights, and, and that a game that conservatives, cultural conservatives, can play as well as liberals. If, if gay Americans have a, a right to have sex in their homes free from criminalization, and Justice Kennedy joined the liberals in a case called Lawrence saying that, you know, why not guns in homes as well as sex in homes? Um, um, you know, the, the liberals like sex and the conservatives like guns, and I say give them both what they want. <laughs> this is America. I personally, you know, prefer sex, but that's maybe just me. Um, uh, so, even without the Second Amendment, there's a big American culture and tradition that respects guns and homes. There are almost as many guns and homes as there are Americans, almost 300 million guns by many counts. Even if you wanted to get rid of them, mm. you couldn't as a practical matter. You know, prying them loose from you know, um, every American where, where they are would make prohibition look like a walk in the park. It would be a, a Fourth Amendment search and seizure nightmare, a civil libertarian nightmare. Even if you wanted to do all that, oh, and most states have state constitutions that have counterpart language about guns. So, 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 so what I say is there's a right to have a gun. The core of the right is a gun in the home for self-protection. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of regulation, reasonable regulation that would be consistent with that. Um, and, and maybe the, the next big case is going to be about um, people who carry guns outside the home in concealed ways and mm -hmm. whether um, uh, laws, state laws that restrict the concealed carrying of a weapon violate the core right. So I say there's a core right, um, but it, it, it's subject to um, a reasonable regulation that doesn't infringe upon that core right, which is guns and homes for self-protection. You mentioned privacy, and yeah. uh, we have a question coming in. Uh, uh, from Facebook, from uh, Mahdi al-Husseini, and he says, uh, in our increasingly globalized and tech-oriented world, the right of privacy seems to be a gradually diminishing principle of freedom, with policies such as the Patriot Act being established under the banner of domestic security. Such policies permit wiretapping, heavy surveillance of particular individuals, among other things. Uh, what, with that in mind, uh, what is the future of our privacy rights uh, in your mind? Uh, is this the beginning of an era where uh, Big Brother's always watching, or is it sort of a passing trend? Well, boy, there are a lot of provisions of the Patriot Act, and they're scattered throughout U.S. code, and I don't know what particular provisions mm -hmm. he's, he's worried about, and I might agree with him on some mm -hmm. provisions and disagree with him on others. And I'm not sure I would say we, we have less privacy net-net than our forebears did. We have new te um, technologies of surveillance, but in um, uh, the Lawrence case, for example, um, uh, uh, in, the, in the 21st century, the Supreme Court said 
government cannot make it a crime for people even of the same sex to have sexual relations. Now, the founding, there were laws on the books prohibiting same-sex conduct. And throughout the 19th century, there were laws mm -hmm. on the books and the 20th century too. Now, the Lawrence Court said yes, but those laws weren't very vigorously enforced um, um, between consensual adults in private. Um, but still, only in this century did the court say those laws are unconstitutional. Um, only in this century did courts um, uh, proclaim in cases like Griswold versus Connecticut and Eisenstadt versus Baird a robust right of privacy saying government can't prohibit contra uh, sa the sale of contraception. Government um, has to um, allow um, people to use contraception in, uh, in the home and, and buy contraception. So I think in, in, in various ways um, courts have been sensitive to American privacy interests. Courts have said you can homeschool your kids um, you can um, um, uh, have a gun in your private dwelling place for self-protection. Um, you have a certain sexual intimacy in your home. You actually have a right to erotic material in your home. A case so, so in some ways, it's, it's, it's become liberalized. That's my yeah, view. Yeah. Compared to the founding era, where on the books, at yeah. least, there are all sorts of quite sexually intolerant, repressive, mm -hmm. anti-privacy um, rules that were in place. So, so I'm not sure it's the case that, mm -hmm. uh, that I'm not sure I agree with the premise mm -hmm. that we've really, you know, lost all our privacy rights. From Facebook, uh, Edmund Balella asks, uh, raises uh, the Defense of Marriage Act again, and I don't know if you have any sort of final thoughts on, on that, on how, how you think it's likely to play out this time. Well, on that one, <clears throat> some conservatives who believe in states' rights might ally with liberals who believe in uh, individual rights of, of, of uh, sexual liberty and equality. And so you might get a coalition, possibly, in which um, the, the idea is the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, is wrong because the federal government should respect state marriage laws, because ordinarily it does. Uh, for example, um, um, uh, usually you know, state law decides whether two people are married. That's, that's um, part of family law, and, and, and in most states, first cousins can get married, for example, mm. but not in all states. I assume in, in most states, first cousins can't get married, but in some states they can. And, and the federal government basically respects state law on that matter. Um, now, um, the rule, the age of consent might, uh, marriage consent, marital consent might vary a little bit from state to state. And ordinarily, the federal government just follows state rules on that. So I could imagine the Supreme Court saying, um, the federal government should treat you as married if your state treats you as married. That's, you know, this is um, uh, 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 just a, a part of American mm -hmm. federalism. I could imagine maybe one justice saying that, a conservative justice, maybe Justice Kennedy saying that, joined by the liberals who believe basically that you should same-sex marriage should be the law everywhere. Um, so. Liberals who believe in same-sex marriage as a general proposition need basically one or you know, conservative who believes in states' rights and wants to reign in the federal government, and then you'd have five votes to strike down the Defense of Marriage Act. 
question uh, tweeted at us uh, by at Yale Women, uh, which is the global network of Yale Women alumni. Uh, they're interested to know if you have any thoughts on um, what uh, the recent lift on the, the ban of women in combat by the military, uh, whether that's likely to affect uh, women's rights uh, more broadly uh, on a national scale. Yes, it is. Um, I have a whole chapter in this book, maybe my favorite chapter, called uh, Remembering the Ladies. That's a quote from... I'm going to show um, the book, actually. Um, uh, uh, Abigail Adams, um, America's Feminist Constitution. So here's one thing that's, that's unwritten in our Constitution. How broadly should we read amendments to change what happened before? Earlier I said the 14th Amendment changed the meaning of gun rights in America. Originally it was about state militias against a federal army and now it's actually a right against states as well as the federal government and it's an individual right for self-protection rather than you know, an anti-tyranny idea. Okay, So I say the 14th Amendment changed the Second Amendment in some really important ways. Let's take the First Amendment. It says Congress shall make no law abridging free speech, but today we think states can't make laws mm -hmm. abridging free speech or free press or religion. Now let's take the 19th Amendment. That's the Women's Suffrage Amendment. I think this is a radical amendment because actually it doubles the franchise. It's, you know, it's a really big epic idea. Article 2 says when, about the president, he, him, his. But I think Hillary Clinton has a right to be president. I think Sarah Palin has a right to be vice president. No state could keep them off the ballot. But where does it say that in the Constitution? It says he, him, his. I say the 19th Amendment has a profound gravitational pull on not just who can vote, but who can be voted for, who can be eligible to be president. I think actually women's um, military rights and responsibilities are connected up with their political rights and responsibilities. Political and military rights have always gone hand in hand at the founding. Unpropertied people supported the American Revolution. They were there at Lexington, Concord, Bunker Hill. They got to vote. At the Civil War, blacks fought, black men, um, um, Denzel Washington, you know, and, and, and the movie Glory, um, uh, um, um, black men fought. Um, on the battlefield and they got the vote in the 15th Amendment. In World War II, women are sort of part of the struggle against um, um, Germany and they get the vote. Woodrow Wilson supports women's suffrage, the 19th Amendment, as a war measure. In my lifetime, 18-year-olds are fighting and dying in Vietnam and so the Constitution gets amended as they, they have a right mm -hmm. to vote on whether it should be in Vietnam. So military rights and responsibilities have always been linked up in some ways with political rights and mm. responsibilities. Interesting. And we are more likely to see women presidents and women senators when we have women warriors. I, um, two weeks ago, was in D.C. giving a talk to House Democrats. I didn't get a chance to, to um, uh, pay my respects to her, to see her, but Tammy Duckworth was there, mm -hmm. and she lost her legs, mm -hmm. actually, in combat. Uh, and she's a genuine war hero in the same way that John McCain is a genuine war hero, and John Kennedy, and John Kerry, and Bob Kerry, and Bob Dole. And in an earlier world, it was the Johns and Bobs who were the war heroes and came back, you know, and became senators and presidents, you know, the Kennedys and the Careys and, and the Doles and the Canes. And it wasn't the Joannas and Robertas. It was the, you know, the Roberts and the Johns. But, but as women, so this is a deep 
unwritten entailment of the 19th Amendment. If women are voting, they should be, mm -hmm. sort of have the right and responsibility to serve equally, which will feed back into our system mm -hmm. and make them more credentialed to be secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, presidents of the United States, senators of the United States. So these things fit together in an unwritten way. I want to squeeze in one more question before we close. This one is from a Yale Law student, whom you may or may not know, Aaron Goldzimmer, and I'm going to paraphrase his, his question. Um, I think he'd like you to address whether you think, and this is a broad question, uh, uh, but is American uh, constitutional democracy functioning well or not? Do you, do you agree with the premise that it may not be? Um, compared to what? Um, so we're in a not great shape right now in some respects compared to where we were um, as a country, let's say, 30, 40 years ago. But are we worse off than England or France or Italy or I India or other great democracies? Um, in Chapter 1 of my last book, I tried to explain what the source of America's strength is. You're referring to America's Unwritten Constitution. That, that was yeah. the, um, the pre which was a sequel to a book called America's Constitution, a Biography. And what I tried to show in America's Constitution, a Biography, is that a lot of what made America free was our oceans. We basically, mm. for the first 150 years, didn't have a standing army in peacetime. So we didn't have to pay for it, and that didn't threaten our liberty. Meanwhile, the rest of the world, you know, tyrants, and who oppress them. And we have these massive oceans that protect us from these tyrannies, um, and we don't need a, an army. Um, um, uh, uh, and so now what's happened in the last 50 years? The rest of the world has actually become increasingly American. They've adopted democracies. They've gotten rid of these military dictatorships, these th thuggish regimes in places like Japan and, and Germany and Italy and elsewhere. They're becoming American. So we're kind of more competing with ourselves. Mm. Um, and so there's going to be a, an evening up. America is the only nation on its feet after World War II. Everyone else is on their knees or um, are on their backs. Twenty million Russians die. Bombs have rained over um, um, a p parliament. Um, uh, France has been occupied. Um, so, so compared to 1950 or 1960, yes, there's been a, a certain evening up because we're, we have a huge military complex that we are financing now that we didn't used to. The rest of the world isn't paying for, for a big military. They've become democratic on the American mm -hmm. This is good for the world. Mm -hmm. um, good for Yale. Yale looks a lot different now than it used to. People from around the world. So that's a certain evening up. We're no longer you know, a as far ahead as everyone else. Um, we're also in the middle of a political transition. The Republicans have been in the ascendancy really since Reagan, and now Democrats are actually maybe um, moving. So in this time of transition, um, um, the parties are deeply divided and polarized. And, uh, but I don't see our system as fundamentally more flawed. We, you know, we had an economic downturn. So did Europe. So did England. So I don't see us as worse off than they are. They have a parliamentary system. They have multiple party systems. That works well for them. I don't think that, you know, that um, um, we should impose our system on them. But our system has worked well for us. They drive on you know, the left side of the road. We drive on the right side of the road. We've both made it work. <laughs> and here's why I say you know, our basic constitutional system isn't deeply flawed. And this is the last chapter of the book when I imagine what constitutional amendments we should adopt. Here's my reason for being somewhat complacent. We have 50 state constitutions, and they look a lot like the federal constitution. And they're easy to amend, and they haven't been amended. So they have written constitutions, and a bill of rights, and judicial review, and juries, 
and bicameral legislatures, except in Nebraska, and governors who look a lot like presidents, and a jury system, and two parties. Um, so that's the American system. And in any state that wants to change it can, but the states haven't done it. So I think it's worked pretty well for us. Um, and, and other societies, they've got good constitutions that you know, are working well for them. So, um, so we have our problems, but on balance, I'm 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 not you know moving uh, um, to Canada. Okay, we've got uh, just about a minute or two left, uh, and I want to ask you uh, uh, two two closing questions, and I'll just ask them together. One is, are you going to be attending oral arguments for any of the cases uh, uh, coming up at the Supreme Court? Uh, and uh, this is somewhat of a non sequitur, but do you have uh, another book project already in the works? Thanks for asking. So I think DC is sufficiently far away from New Haven, and I, I, most important thing is I got to teach my classes, and, and, and so so I will be watching these things from afar through the magic of uh, uh, of um, uh, uh, transcripts and radio. And if they, I would love it if they actually televised, um, uh, the, but that's not happening um, uh, uh, in the in the near term. But but I can listen to radio transcripts, often audio transcripts, and and uh, and so that's how I'll be following. Um, goings on in the Supreme Court. I will be appearing, I th think, this Sunday on um, the Melissa Harris Perry show, MHP on MSNBC, from 10 to noon to talk about the voting rights case, wh where I have written a piece um, that's, uh, that's going to be online later this week in the Harvard Law Review. So I care a lot about that voting rights um, issue. Um, and the next book, I think I'm just about to start. I like to write books about the entirety of the American constitutional experience. America's Constitution, a biography, took the reader through the written text from start to finish, from the preamble, Articles 1, 2, 3, etc., and then all the amendments. This book says, well, there's more than just the written Constitution. There's an unwritten Constitution. Here are different ways of thinking about an unwritten Constitution that doesn't lose touch with the text. The next book, I think, is going to be chronological. Um, uh, it's going to be called maybe uh, 12 score. America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 2000. And I'm going to have 12 chapters, each a, a score, a 20-year period, talking about the great American conversation that we've held amongst ourselves, um, um, among citizens, in the con Congress, in the courts, in the executive branch. Um, uh, for 240 years, we've been debating constitutional issues, sometimes disagreeing with each other, sometimes pretty fiercely, but always in the end, you know, part of a, of a, of a constitutional conversation that has endured. Well, we'll look forward to that, and I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. And I want to thank all of you for watching At Yale Live. We'll look forward to having you join us again next month. Thanks so much.